0: This is Beyond the Couch with Bridges, a podcast at the intersection of Asian Pacific Islander, South Asian American identity and mental health. I'm Christy. I'm Sam. And I'm Diana.
1: We are three therapists who got together in the hopes of demystifying therapy and uplifting stories from our community. Each week, we'll connect with fellow therapists, experts, and community members about life, identity, and healing. We're so glad you're joining us today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Beyond the Couch with Bridges Mental Health. I'm Diana and today I'm joined by Neera Shah. Neera is an individual and couples psychotherapist licensed in New York and California, as well as a yoga and meditation instructor. She supports folks who are experiencing emotional distress and want to connect with life in a deeper way to build resilience and fulfillment. Welcome, Neera. It's really nice to have you here today.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on.
1: Yeah. Can you start off by telling us more about yourself and how you came into the work of therapy?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I got my master's from Columbia in 2012, and since then I've worked in a few different spaces. So for five years, I worked abroad with refugees, first based in Nairobi, doing refugee resettlement to the U.S. and child protection. And then I was based in northern Thailand with the U.N., and there was a focal point for child protection, gender-based violence, and psychosocial support. I returned to New York in 2018 and finished my clinical license hours while working in child protection and social work. And then I launched my private practice in 2020 and made it full-time just a few months ago. So I've really appreciated working in community-based spaces before doing private practice um, because it gave me much of a, a wider perspective on mental health and a lot of experiential exposure to working with different and diverse populations and folks from the lower socioeconomic end. Um, my therapy work right now pulls from cognitive and holistic approaches, and a huge focus for me at the moment is building more interventions from compassion-focused therapy and integrating workshops around yoga, meditation, and of course, compassion.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. I feel like you know many of us therapists who are therapists of color might feel like we we bring um a diversity lens into our work um because of our own lived experiences but many of us may not have you know traveled or had the experience that you have had in seeking out other um other experiences in different countries and so i think that's really interesting that you've had that experience before you started working in the united
0: states yeah yeah absolutely and you know, intersectionality and addressing things like the impacts of structural racism have been so important to me. And so it's, it's been really cool having these field-based jobs because not only was I able to develop certain therapeutic skills, but I could also be an advocate in these spaces. And oftentimes for people and communities that don't really reach out for individual therapy.
1: And so now that you're in private practice, what are some of the challenges that people seek you out to work on?
0: Yeah, so most of my clients are coming with concerns related to anxiety, depression, trauma, life transitions, identity and value exploration, relationship concerns, and a lot of them just want to explore having a deeper connection with themselves and really enhancing their personal growth.
1: Is your client composed of, you know, a diverse clientele or do you work with other Asian Pacific Islander and South Asian clients as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say most of my clients are either BIPOC or identify as AAPI Mm -hmm. and many of them are either immigrants or children of immigrants. And so, yeah, this is probably the majority of clients that I work with.
1: Yeah. And have you noticed some themes that come up in the work that you do with them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing that I always notice is clients in these groups hold a lot of mixed identities So they feel like they're both, you know, holding the identity of their culture of origin, plus Mm -hmm. being American. And so some of our work is exploring what it means to to hold both of these spaces and, and also feel not fully part of each identity. So there's some exploration of values, because, you know, as you know, values are what kind of guide our fulfillment in life. And with values, you know, we, we develop these in our younger years and they're often based off of messages we get or experiences from our caregivers or community or culture. And then as adults, we've realized that a lot of these values just don't fit anymore. You know, we just adopted them. And so some of the work is really t- trying to tease out like what, what still holds true for clients and where do they wanna create their own values and narrative. Um, and that can be really hard for a lot of clients Um, there's often some guilt or shame. Mm -hmm. And I I see particularly with children of immigrants, um, there's this sense of obligation to follow a certain path, which their parents have wanted for them. And I think it's, you know, because they feel that their parents have sacrificed so much to give them a life here in America that, you know, they feel they need to stay on that path. Yeah. Yeah. I often notice another theme around success and what, it, what that means both in career and romantically. Um, there's pressure to do well. And even if that pressure is initially from parents, it often gets internalized. As you know, you know, in many Asian cultures, there's that sense of collectivism and family connection. So things like creating boundaries or departing from expectations is, is heavy. And it's also not realistic for a lot of folks. And I, I do have um, quite a few South Asian clients too. And another common theme I noticed with them is just feeling distress over either not having found a partner by a certain age or having a partner who's wonderful, but not of the expected religion or ethnic group or background that the client's parents desire. And so there's just a lot of fear that the parents will cut them out of their lives for making a decision like this.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And going back to some of the other issues that you identified, I definitely have experienced that as well in my my work with my clients and sometimes I think the values piece can be helpful because I think sometimes we don't really even think about what our values are. We just like think that they are what we thought they were from a young age and that's just the way it has to stay and when we are actually thinking about them more intentionally and realizing that, oh, I can actually, I can, I can change, right. I can actually have different values now as an adult or I can adjust. Right. And I think that's part of the work is to ask ourselves what it is that we want or what we need and what we value. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I see for so many clients that these values are just so ingrained in them. Like they really, um, kind of influence how they operate in life and it's and they want to depart from them but it just feels so internal so it it does take quite a bit of work and restructuring but but it is possible
1: yeah yeah and I think sometimes going back to what you said with like the feelings of guilt also like loss right loss of like not having the full cultural experience on either side right feeling like oh I'm, I'm American also Asian and like but not fully either right there's some loss in not having either experience fully.
0: Absolutely. And just feeling like you don't fully belong in either group as well. So that, that kind of sense of belonging is not always there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you had mentioned a little bit earlier that you, that your work pulls from both holistic approaches, specifically compassion-focused therapy. Can you talk more about what that is exactly?
0: Yeah. So compassion-focused therapy, it's It's a relatively new model, and it's based on evolutionary psychology, attachment theory, and Tibetan Buddhist compassion practice. Mm -hmm. And it's considered a third-wave therapy. And third-wave approaches, they they take the cognitive behavioral orientations and prioritize the holistic components rather than seeing them only as a side benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, And compassion-focused therapy, it's super interesting. It was developed by Paul Gilbert, who used to use a lot of CBT, And he noticed that even if clients become really skilled at reframing their cognitive distortions, if they continue to relate and speak to themselves in a harsh way, their their emotional distress is going to continue. And so CFT explores skills to help clients regulate their mood and embody feelings of safety, self-acceptance, and comfort. And, you know, of course, a major component is self-compassion and self-compassion regulates our emotions and, you know, especially difficult emotions through care and connection. And so even though CFT is its own model, it's also really complementary to the other cognitive approaches, because usually, you know, compassion is already a component to these orientations.
1: I feel like self-compassion is, in a way, almost like meditation. It's one of these um, practices has that, that, you know, a lot of people have been talking about. It's being written about a lot more. And I, I feel like it's one of those things that, many people want to try to do, but find it really difficult, right, to actually practice it, right?
0: Yeah, oh my gosh, so much, and it's, you know, it often poses this question of, you know, how how would you respond to a friend, and most people are, c- can so easily identify how they would respond to a friend, but when mm-hmm. it comes to giving that same warmth and kindness to themselves, it's just completely different. Yeah, it's definitely a tough skill.
1: Yes, to to practice and to, you know, pull yourself back from what might be more common, which is maybe being self-critical, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, Uh, absolutely.
1: Or saying, this is not a big deal. I should be able to deal with it. I should be able to manage it. Yeah. Um, So can you give us an example of someone who would benefit from this type of therapy?
0: So the research shows that CFT is particularly useful for those who have mood disorders, personality disorders, eating concerns, hoarding tendencies, trauma, or body image or relationship Mm -hmm. challenges. But to be honest, like anyone could benefit from this. You know, it's it's clearly useful for those who have harsh inner critics and fall into self-judgment a lot. And, you know, I think this is most people. And, you know, a lot of times that inner critic is happening at such an unconscious level, like we don't even realize how hard we're being on ourselves. And what I notice with a lot of clients is, you know, that self-criticism comes not only to areas of their life, but also judgment towards how they're feeling or what they're thinking. You know, they feel ashamed to experience emotions such as anger or anxiety or jealousy. And it's, you know, often forgotten that these are normal human emotions. So, and, and I always think this always comes to light anytime you hear somebody say, you know, I shouldn't be feeling this. I should be feeling grateful. Yeah. Right, And that, that's actually a lot of judgment directed solely at an emotion, which is just an, an internal and normal experience.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of judgment also just a lot of like invalidation of our own experiences, right? Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. And then, you know, even for folks who don't have a harsh inner critic, I think the other major benefit of developing more self-compassion is that you learn how to turn towards your suffering and find ways to offer yourself comfort, soothing, or acceptance. And this is so helpful because, you know, suffering is just a part of life Mm -hmm. and self-compassion. It really poses this question of what do I need right now to feel safe or to feel comforted or soothed or to protect myself or care for myself. And so it teaches clients to be able to hold and tend to their suffering. And it's not, not with the intention of feeling better, but it's because they are suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, you know, this in turn does help them feel better, but it's not the main focus. And, you know, another way to think about it is if we're distressed and we turn to a loved one to offer us support or validation or kindness or or even a hug, Mm -hmm. that usually feels good, right? We usually feel cared for and safe. Mm -hmm. And it's really learning that we can offer this to ourselves as well. So it's, yeah, really teaching clients how to do that. Yeah. And
1: what does this look like in a session?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So part of it is identifying that inner critic right? So that dialogue that shows up that's really harsh and judgmental, when it shows up, when what areas, what it sounds like. And, you know, there's a bit of CBT work there to uncover if it's connected to any core beliefs or core wounds and a, a bit of restructuring some of those negative thoughts and those core beliefs. Um, for some folks, that inner critic tends to sound a lot like a caregiver's voice, right? And again, it's going back to the idea that we ingrain these messages that we get growing up Mm -hmm. and so it's it's for them like rewriting that narrative which can be really empowering it's asking you know what do you want this new voice to sound like that can be your voice the other part of self-compassion is integrating this mind body experience so self-compassion goes hand in hand with mindfulness and I'm, i'm really big on teaching clients about mindfulness because it's not only a useful tool for coping with distress But when we develop it as a habit and an intuitive skill, it really allows us to engage in life in a different way and actually embody things like self-compassion or acceptance or gratitude. And mindfulness is so essential when talking about self-compassion because we need to be aware of our internal experiences before we tend to it, Mm -hmm. right? We need to be able to notice what's happening in our emotions, in our thoughts, in our body. And mindfulness asks, what do I know? While self-compassion adds on, what do I need? And so in sessions, I'll often lead clients through brief mindfulness and self compassion practices and then process with them afterward what that experience felt like. And these practices are often meditative. So I'll guide clients either through a seated meditation or a movement meditation. And these meditations facilitate clients to turn toward themselves, whether it's through a gesture, a movement, or answering an inquiry. And it's this deep inward exploration, and especially towards emotional distress and asking clients to stay there and hold that distress and examine it before tending to it and exploring ways that they can ground themselves. So essentially, what we're really trying to do is create a compassionate energy, which is really like this, this embodied presence of kindness.
1: Do you find that the mindfulness piece can be difficult for um some of these i i'm i'm seeing them as like perfectionistic uh, overachievers that you know have maybe an idea of of how to do this right like the right way to be mindful or to meditate and sometimes maybe confusing the two of those things
0: yeah yeah absolutely i i see that all the time and not not only in the folks who have those perfectionism tendencies but but really just in most people, because Mm -hmm. mindfulness is a difficult skill. And, you know, it's, it's always presented as this really great benefit and, and it is, but what's left out of the narrative is that it's hard to do, right. To be able to just sit with ourselves and observe what comes up without judging or evaluating or problem solving. And so I think a lot of people will try out mindfulness. They'll, you know, try it once or a few times and then think, well, that didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. you know, I was just thinking the whole time, or I don't feel any happier or more calm. And so there's a lot of expectations of what this practice is supposed to be. And the truth is, it's it's like learning a skill, right? It's like learning the piano, that we wouldn't be able to just sit down for the first time and know how to play.
1: Yeah, thanks for speaking to that. Because I think that it's actually even just struggling through it, that that is the practice, right? <laughs> Having the thoughts, realizing that you weren't in your body, that you weren't, mindful and, and sort of trying again, right. To, to, to pick it up again. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, even, even that noticing though, noticing that you were in your thoughts is still mindfulness, mm-hmm. right. So that's still practicing it in a way.
1: Exactly. And so what changes have you seen in your clients when uh, they're more self-compassionate? Is that something you can notice in them?
0: Yeah. Um. So I think the the first thing that stands out is clients able to speak to themselves in a different and more kind way and that's that's really huge because you know we hear our own internal dialogue more than anyone else so if clients are able to shift that and have a more compassionate voice Mm -hmm. um, it ends up just positively influencing all these areas of their life and you know it gets reflected in their relationships and they can move through conflict more easily and they're able again to practice things like acceptance more deeply And then in session, when we do these practices, it gives clients a chance to really feel this embodiment. And that's so important because then they can see firsthand that this this isn't impossible, what we're talking about, right? It's not mystical or woo-woo. And, you know, the, the more I get trained on this approach, the more I can see and also feel myself, like how powerful it is. I think, you know, therapy often gets stuck in the cognitive and in the cerebral. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about thoughts, we talk about emotions, and that's incredibly useful, but it's not addressing the experiential part. So when I bring these mind-body practices into session, it really helps shift our focus to one of both igniting those feelings right in the moment, and they're often going to be uncomfortable, and then addressing them. And when we address them, again, it's all with the inclination, with kindness and inquiry. So yeah, it really gives clients just a chance to be able to feel their emotions differently and then respond to them differently. And they're, you know, they can see firsthand, like, wow, I actually do have the ability to soothe myself or to quiet my mind or to offer myself comfort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, outside of sessions, it, it, that feels so hard for them to do.
1: Yeah. It's like, you're helping them slow things down, sl- because our thoughts are so fast, right? So, so much of the time our thoughts are automatic, especially if we've got that, whatever voice ingrained in us, you know? So a lot of these thoughts are just coming at us really quickly. And when we slow it down and try to integrate that emotional experience, a compassionate emotional experience, then we have a chance to actually maybe have different thoughts about it or have a different experience. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I only started integrating these practices a few months ago and um I can see what a difference it is, because it, as you probably know, we can tell clients over and over to practice mindfulness, to try meditation, and a lot of them just aren't going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they don't have time, or, or I think the other part is they might not believe it's actually going to help them. Yeah. And so it got to a point for me where I'm like, you know what, let's just do it in session and see what happens. And that's where you really start to see the shift, because then, again, they start to realize like, oh, okay, this was actually a lot more accessible than I thought.
1: Yeah. And you have to have an experience of it first to want to do it again on your own, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's say someone who's listening today recognizes that, yeah, really have this harsh inner critic. What are some things that someone like that could do or try out?
0: Well, I think the first part is to to really try to understand and address that critical Mm self-talk, right? So notice what it's saying and try to reframe it into one that's kinder. And, you know, the other part of that is, is not only changing the dialogue, but changing the tone, right? The emotional tone of how you speak to yourself, because oftentimes the dialogue itself could actually be neutral. mm -hmm. You know, for example, this question of like, why did I do that? There's a way of asking that question that can be really harsh and self-critical, right? Kind of scolding yourself like, oh God, why did I do that? And when we ask ourselves a question in that way, it really has the undertone of, I shouldn't have done that. And it only loops back to shame and feeling bad. And so you know, if you shift the tone and ask it in a neutral way of like, okay, what, like, why did I do that? What, what was happening for me that I did that in that moment? Um, it just creates such a different space that's more curious and more open. And you can usually then answer that question, right? It um, facilitates a little bit more self-discovery and problem solving because you're posing dialogue to yourself that isn't so harsh and scolding you um the other major area that I suggest is to engage in mindfulness and self-compassion practices you know mindfulness again like it gives us the skill to observe what's coming up and try to sit with ourselves and not judge ourselves or changing anything and and you know it also gives us a break from our mind and um again the self-compassion practices are, are adding on that component of like how can I instill some kindness to myself, whether it's through words or gestures or just, you know, something that I can give myself that's comforting in the moment. And I I always recommend Krista Neff's website. She offers a lot of great resources and self-compassion meditations. And her and Chris Germer, who's another kind of pioneer in this field, have created a a few workbooks as well with really beautiful and intentional practices.
1: Yeah, I definitely encourage my clients to take a look at Kristen Neff's website and her books as well. So it sounds like less criticism, more curiosity, more observation, more self-observation I suppose, right? Of what what you need and what you want.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. Which I know it's it's funny because when we lay it out it sounds simple but it's it's really not, right? And like you said if we think about everything running through our heads it just can feel hard to pause that and add something new.
1: Yeah, it's hard to pause it and then be intentional, right? Like, oh, I'm doing something different this time. I'm not going to automatically just go with this train of thought and do what I normally yes. do
0: in a situation. Yeah. yeah.
1: So thank you so much for being here and for sharing with us more about your practice. Can you let people know how they can find you if they want to connect with you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my website is siawellness.com. That's S-I-A wellness. And then on my Instagram, it's sia.wellness.
1: Okay, great. Thanks so much again for being here. And listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who might appreciate it as well. And even better, if you haven't rated us or left us a review, we would really appreciate that. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Nero.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Beyond the Couch.
1: Tune in every Wednesday, rate or review us to help grow our community and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We'd love to
0: hear from you. So connect with us on Instagram at Bridges Mental Health.